This episode is made possible by Unfound supporters at Patreon, YouTube, and Unfound's gracious advertisers. Once a year, for just a single episode, I hand over the entire agenda to you. Instead of me determining what the topic will be, most of the time a disappearance, you get to do so by sending me your questions concerning just about anything under the sun. And I answer them. Today, I give you this fifth annual Q&A episode. I'm Ed Dunsell, and this is Unfound. For me, there are a lot of standards a person must keep or attain to be able to host a podcast or show that deals with a serious topic like disappearances, a certain demeanor and serious attitude, you might call it. Other topics would be medicine, law, psychology, to name a few, while many other topics, video games, movies, cars... Those hosts have a lot more leeway, and they should. Those are supposed to be fun and laid-back subjects. One of my standards for the Serious Topics host is he or she must be transparent to the audience. Why? Trust and knowing that the host is honest is everything. All of you should be able to research the host to make sure he's not a con man especially for disappearances. So, as an example, I'm not a big fan of true crime hosts who hide behind pseudonyms. In fact, I believe they just do it for effect. It's just a marketing thing. Well, today you have the opportunity to get to know more about me as I answer many questions both inside and outside of disappearances. All in my continuing effort to make sure you realize you're listening to the most honest guy in true crime. Unfound News. Did you catch my appearance on the Web Sleuths YouTube channel this past Saturday night? I hope you did. I can already tell that it was a huge hit just looking at the increase in YouTube subscribers for Unfound's channel. Thank you to Trisha for the great discussion. Next, last week I was interviewed for an article that will eventually be coming out on longreads.com. That's L O N G R E A D S.com. The topic was unfound and how I go about doing my work for the podcast. The author is Kathy McDonald, who has a brother, James McDonald, who went missing while kayaking right here in Florida, over 10 years ago. I will let you know when the article comes out. Finally, I remind all of you again about my upcoming teachable course, How to Podcast Better Than Anyone. My prediction is it will be available by June 1st. 
Maybe you don't have any designs on starting your own podcast, but maybe one of your children does or a niece or nephew. This will make a great birthday or Christmas gift. Now, the questions. The first question is of the disappearance variety. The question is, did you hear about the police chief in Hinkley Township, Ohio, who disappeared in Cleveland on July 30th, 1985? He had said he was meeting a friend at the beach there in Cleveland and that they were going swimming and his car was found parked there at the beach, but there were no sign, There was no sign of him. His name was Mel Wiley. He was 47, divorced with no children. They thought that maybe he drowned in Lake Erie, but they didn't find any trace of him. Thank you. Uh, this is a disappearance that is on the Charlie Project. It is a disappearance that is on NamUs. I have to admit that I've uh, never had heard about it before. And I did go to the Charlie Project. There is a long write-up. I'm not going to read it. Several paragraphs about what police discovered when they went to his place and how some of his things were missing. Uh, Like uh, he was known to be a writer, but he was working on a book that they couldn't find anywhere. He had a book of poetry that was missing, his music collection, envelopes, stamps, typewriting paper, typewriter paper, and his address book were all never found anywhere. And in addition, um, what they figured out is he had used an old typewriter, and in these older electric typewriters, you could actually see what the person wrote if you looked at the the ribbon that was still in the typewriter. In fact, that was the plot of a Columbo uh, episode back in the 1970s. Uh, But they figured out that he, before he went missing, had typed a letter to a friend, but for some reason, uh, the friend never received the letter. And it said uh, the what was contained in the letter, once again, looking at the ribbon from the typer, it said he would be 2,500 miles away by the time his friend got the letter. But once again, his friend never received the letter and the investigators never found it in his car, in his place. Um, but they deciphered it, as I said, what Wiley had written by looking at the ribbon on, his, on it of his uh, typewriter that was left behind should know that he was writing a mystery. So what do I think about all of this? Did he drown? Did he actually go into Lake Erie and drowned? Uh, did he really run off and really, was he really 2,500 miles away? Uh, not long after he went missing. What I would say is, if he really was a mystery writer and was working on um, writing in his spare time and writing mysteries, as I've done, I've written a few books that contained mysteries and everything. He sure did leave a lot of clues behind for a guy who was writing mysteries, and I think this was on purpose. I think that he left that typewriter, as it were. I think he was hoping that would people would find that. I. I happen to believe that the guy committed suicide, but I think he was leaving everybody to believe that he didn't. Because he was, if he was really looking to get away and really disappear and everything, he wouldn't have set up things the way he did. Just too many clues and everything. Of course, these clues did not lead to finding him. And it does say in the write-up that he might, be, might have been bored with his job and life wasn't going the way he thought. 
So I'm not saying that he ended up deceased right that day in Lake Erie. That would not surprise me. Um, People do drown and their bodies never come back to the surface. We should not take for granted that people who go out swimming and and drown um, automatically come back to the surface. In fact, with Lake Mead, the way it's been and the, the water dropping, they're finding remains on the bottom of Lake Mead of people who drowned. They weren't put in cement barrels or anything like that. They found bones on the bottom of the lake. So it's certainly possible that he could have gone out into Lake Erie and drowned maybe on purpose. Maybe, you know, took something out there, I don't know, and tied his leg to it and pulled him down to the bottom or something like that. But I'm inclined to believe this guy one way or the other committed suicide. It's just that he didn't want people to think that he did so. So uh, that's what I think. You want to look it up? Once again, Mel Wiley he went missing on July 30th, 1985. And if you look into it, let me know what you think. But that uh, is the first question for this Q&A part of this episode. Next question. I, uh, from This is all from one person. Got a lot of questions about artificial intelligence. Spectacular. I was very happy to get questions because it's been on my mind too. Uh, regarding artificial intelligence, I've seen some things that AI has written. I know to, to many people this is all very scary. They start thinking about the Terminator movies and things like that. But for me, for disappearances, I start thinking, can AI assist in solving disappearances and understanding them better? And so these questions I'm just going to answer uh, these questions, but it's like this person who was asking me these questions was reading my mind. And you should know that, although I've not spoken about it recently, that I have uh, a few times talked about algorithms. That I think that if we were to uh, create some sort of algorithm based on disappearances that have been solved, that police could then use that algorithm to quickly determine when they show on the scene, up on the scene of a disappearance and are going to be filling out the report, be able to run those, the statistics on that person, the facts about that person through an algorithm, and the algorithm would be able to say, well, that person probably is going to come back alive within two days or, or three days or go, is going to be found deceased or you know isn't going to be found for a while. I think... We have the computer capability of doing that if somebody is able to put the work in. So that's kind of along those lines of artificial intelligence. So this person asked me, what does this mean for true uh, for crime and missing persons writing and podcasting, first of all? Being that we know it seems that AI uh, can write paragraphs that sound like humans wrote them. Uh being the cynic that I am, I have to just believe a lot of podcasters will be taking shortcuts. Me, I take too much pride in my writing, and I do a lot of writing for this pod- podcast, as all podcasters do. Podcast does not exist without the writing first, and I, I talk about that in the upcoming teachable course that I'm working on, how to podcast better than anyone. Uh, but a lot of podcasters are going to take that shortcut because writing is – it takes the longest time and it is the toughest part of podcasting. What do I want to say? 
Sometimes that's a little difficult to figure out. Well, there you go. AI will just figure it out for you. And I'm telling you, podcasters in all genres are going to be taking advantage of it. I think it's horrible. For me, like I said, I've worked too long, too hard on my writing to just then sit back and let a computer do it for me. But a lot of podcasters have not worked at their writing like I have. I've been writing stuff you know, for almost 30 years now, books, short stories, novels, all sorts of things. When I used to have more time on my hands. Um, but I think that's what it means for the writing portion of podcasting. And uh, the next question, how much of any of this content is going to be written by humans? Uh, probably a lot less It was the follow-up question. Uh, because once again, writing is the hardest job. And I'm not inclined to believe that many podcasters in any genre have as much of a writing background that I did when I started Unfound in 2016. By the time Unfound got started in 2016, I mean I've, I have millions and millions and millions of words through these fingers. You just don't even know. Moving on, uh, will true crime content creators who don't at least incorporate some of this new technology into the way they do things get left behind? I don't think so. Uh, I, I'm not inclined to b believe that. Um, there's nothing that I see uh, that might that might cause that. Uh, however, if we want to just stick to missing persons cases, I am inclined to believe that if there is a way somewhere down the road where AI can be used to better understand disappearances and make searches better and come to quicker conclusions with disappearances, then yes, the people who don't use it then will get left behind. But that's more from like an investigation point of view. But from a podcasting point of view, I'm, I'm not inclined to – I don't see that right now here in 2023 that if you don't embrace AI that you're going to get uh, left behind. Uh, I don't think so. Next question, will anyone ever successfully – uh, due to AI, due to artificial intelligence, will anyone ever successfully take off and start a new life undetected again? That's always going to be a possibility. Possibility. Because I don't know how AI would be able to track somebody who decided that uh, a missing person, John Smith, is, has decided to leave his life and he's going to go live in the woods somewhere. I don't know how AI would be able to figure that out and pinpoint where that person is. and it, It's just a little unclear to me. Now, there may be other pieces of technology that might eventually cause that. We know that facial recognition is being used uh, in the United States right right now. In fact, I read a story about – Somebody was trying to go to the theater in New York City, and uh, this is a true story, that the theater itself had AI – had facial recognition technology for some reason and recognized this person, and this person was kicked out of the theater. That happened. So maybe something like that. It's not necessarily AI, but you start combining these technologies together. Yes, it gets scary very quickly, but I continue to believe that 
uh, people if they want to leave their lives or go, let's just say, commit suicide somewhere and not be found. I think that that's always going to be a possibility. As we've learned, uh, people can be very creative uh, when they want to be. Uh, We might look at an example of even – mostly men who are in prison for their lives. They're in these maximum security prisons and still they figure out how to communicate with other cell, you know, other people in cells down the line, whether it's through the drain pipes or code or whatever else, you know, our, our minds are amazing machines. I just wish that more people would use them for good instead of bad. So when people want to figure things out, they can. Uh, Next question regarding uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, Through artificial intelligence, is this how many – any current missing persons who are still out there will be found? I can't rule that out. Um, But we have to remember that it's not like AI is going out there and searching for people. And even if we – AI is connected to satellites and connected to traffic cameras and connected to facial recognition and everything else, eventually it takes some human doing something, uh, and we know how humans can be. So um, once again, to answer, ask that question, is this how any current missing persons who are still out there be found it? I can't discount that. I can't rule it out. I can I can never say never. But I just don't think it's it, – this is not Hollywood. And uh, as many of you who listen to Unfound know who also though um, watch some of these shows like CSI and everything, you know that's not how things really work in the world, real world. But I do come back to – what I said about algorithms, that I think that currently there is a way to create an algorithm using disappearance statistics where it's, it would be like an application on a police officer's phone. You show up and the mother says, well, you know, my daughter went missing a couple days ago. She's 19 years old and here are the facts about her. And there would be the app right on the cop's phone. He starts typing in all these things, all this information. Where was she last seen and how old is she? Does she have addictions? Does she have a violent boyfriend? On and on and on and on. Because remember, disappearances are about people, not about circumstances. And then at the end, the app would be able to say, most likely this uh, young woman will be returning in two days. Or most likely... This woman was probably murdered by her boyfriend, and you should go look, you know, go talk to him, things like that. I think we do have the technology right there to do that, but you have to collect all the information first. But that's what I visualize uh, someday down the road. I don't know if I will be alive to see it. So that's the uh, end of the AI questions. Uh, thank you for those. It's, like I said, it's been on my mind. And I've certainly thought about how AI could be incorporated into how I think about disappearances and the presentations that I do. But I can assure you, AI is never going to do the writing. Next question. What has been the most challenging part about creating the Unfound podcast? I'm not going to lie to you, making it profitable. Um, 
this is, uh, you know, I want to be able to do this for the rest of my life. So, uh, and, uh, can't pay the bills on unicorns and rainbows. So this is, I think it's always probably going to be a concern. This is why I bring up Patreon and PayPal and the merchandise and join on uh, YouTube and uh, advertising with Megaphone and everything else. Um, that is uh, – and I think this would probably be the answer for anybody in any genre of podcasting. And um, you know, especially – and I know that I, I'm going to get this question later down the you – know, this is only the only thing that I do, and I'll get more into that later. But um, that's the most challenging part. When I, as you, many of you know, I have started these monthly meetings with two of my assistants, Eric and Cherie, and it's not the total discussion, but it is part of the discussion. Of course, we talk about the surveys that have gone out and a lot of other things, but we talk about Patreon and we talk about uh, you know opportunities that present themselves, whether it has to do with uh, TV. Uh, possibilities or making things, in, uh, you know, more interesting for people to sign up for Patreon or whatever else. But I'm telling you, the most challenging part about creating uh, the podcast is making it profitable because it's not. Uh, but it actually, when it comes to the actual production, you know, get, putting the episodes together that come out every Friday, um, I would have to say probably it's not so much reaching out to people, but uh, between myself and Emily, we have a lot of people who are no call, no shows. They say, oh, yeah, we want to talk. We want to talk. Yeah, 3 p.m. on Saturday. Great, great, great. Emily calls nothing. That happens a lot to me and her. It's not her fault, not my fault. It's just the way some people are. That becomes exasperating for both of us. But on this part, uh, going back to the most challenging part, uh, making it profitable, this is also why I kind of laugh. It's not a funny topic, but when people say this, it just shows how much they don't – they don't know what they don't know when they say that you know true crime podcasters are getting rich off of people's pain. Except for the two women that uh, run My Favorite Murder, which as – Many of you know it's not something I really care for, but I don't know if anybody's getting rich off of true crime podcasting. Making money, sure, but when people say getting rich, which is what they always say, the critics and trolls and everything always say, anytime they want to uh, uh, exchange paychecks for a year with me, they should let me know. They should let me know. So that answers that question. Where do I see myself in the next years with Unfound? So let's just say, where do I see Unfound being in five years? It's hard to say. Uh, If I would have been being asked this question five years ago, that would have been what? Uh, April 2018? That would have been before the think tank. That would have been before me doing any presentations at colleges. That would have been before uh, the Steve Pankey interview, which didn't happen until 2019, and the two trials that I had. 
you know, I went to, and I didn't have to go, but I went uh, in Greeley, Colorado. A lot has happened in the last five years that I could have never predicted. And there is something about life. I don't know what it is. And I'm not here to get spiritual or anything like that. But there does seem to be a component of life of when you plan too much, how things don't happen. And sometimes things just happen on their own. And I know for me, it, it can be a little exasperating, maybe for uh, m- most of you as well, what, you know, things that you're trying to get done in your life and you're planning, you're doing this, and it just doesn't come true. And then all of a sudden, the very second that you forget about it and change your priorities, boom, that thing happens. Um, so when you ask me what's the next five years, I'm going to continue to do the podcast I'm going to continue to uh, make good choices with the podcast, and we'll just see what happens. It's very much like if you've ever watched interviews with athletes. Rarely do they talk about winning because winning, as soon as you start thinking about expectations is when our brains start locking up. That puts pressure it's a very well-known fact. You know, if you're in sports psychology, one of the first things they tell you is don't worry about the results. Don't think about the results. Don't think about winning. Just think about the process. That's why you hear so many athletes talk about the process. It doesn't matter what sport it is. Well, we're just going to go out there. We're going to take it one game at a time. We're going to practice hard, and we'll just see what happens. You know, And, and NASCAR... What do they ask? Do you ever think you have a chance to win this? Well, you know what? We're going to do what we can. And hopefully with like a few laps to go, we're up toward the front and we'll just do our best. And that's when I ask this, when I think about this question, that's how I think. Well, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to continue to reach out to people. Going to continue to make the best choices I can for unfound and we'll see what happens because, because uh, even with like – as I've mentioned already in this uh, Q&A uh, section, this class I'm putting together for Teachable.com, how to podcast better than anyone, is it going to be popular or something? I don't know. All I can do is do it the best of, to, my, uh, uh, to the best of my abilities and be, tell the truth and be helpful and put it out there and see what happens and and make good choices with all of it. So it's just hard to say where Unfound is going to be in five years. I don't know. I could have ever predicted where I would be. Of course, in the last five years, my mother has died. I moved from Madeira Beach up here to Clearwater Beach. None of that and a lot of other things ever could have been ever predicted five years ago. So it's just hard to say to answer your question. Next question. Is there a particular interview you wish you could do over? I really do not want to get specific on this topic. Um, I just would say in general, a lot of the first ones that I did back in 2016 into 2017. Keep in mind, there's probably 
every interview I've ever done, I probably, if I were to go back and listen to all of them, there are every one of them probably has a question that I missed. And then some of them are ones in which I feel maybe things got off the rails a little bit. And then there are those ones where I wish I could do them totally over. So it's varying degrees. Uh, I'm very critical like that. But complete do-overs, probably it would be those ones would be clustered very early on just because I was new at doing this and was on the job training. And I don't think that I really got comfortable doing interviews with people who I really didn't know maybe well into 2017 or 2018. So I'm not going to pick out any particular one, although I think maybe at times I have mentioned one or two. But this pointed question, I'm just going to say maybe a lot of those interviews I did early on in Unfound's existence, not blaming the guest, uh, but just because uh, I was new at this. But I think that a lot of the newer interviews, 2019, 2020, 2021 – Certainly in all of them, there's probably a question or two I, that I missed or I maybe would have crafted the interview a little differently. But I don't want to get too caught up in perfection. Uh, let's not let the – what do they say? Let's not let uh, be, the, be perfect be the enemy of good. Next question, what are your top three movies? Um, this is hard to say. Because, I mean, you break it down to three. I'm very much a movie person. Not a big TV guy. Uh, And when I say movies, I don't really have a lot of time to watch anything on, even though I have Disney Plus and I have Paramount Plus and Netflix. I really don't watch a ton of things, really. I don't sit down and necessarily watch things. I usually have it on. It's like in the background, like when I'm maybe preparing this Q&A episode or something like that. It's tough to break it down to three, but if I were to say movies that I can watch anytime if they're on, the three would be The Hunt for Red October, Boogie Nights. (laughs) Could there be two movies that are more different than those two? (laughs) And then another one I, I, I would pick out would be The French Connection. It, but you could ask me that a month a month from now, and those three would probably be different. Um, what, what do I like? Why is it those three uh, today, right now? Um, Hunt for Red October probably is the movie I've seen the most in my life over and over and over and over. I have the DVD, and I've had it for a very long time. And I can quote that movie from beginning to end pretty much. I don't know what it is about it. I just think it's I think it's a spectacularly crafted movie. And the movie is much better than the book, by the way, as is the case for all of Tom Clancy's books and movies. All of the movies are better than the books, except maybe for The Sum of All Fears, except for maybe that one. The Clear and Present Danger, all of those, the movies are better than the books. Trust me. I just 
you know, very interesting concept, you know, Cold War, stealing a submarine and, and everything. I just – it's so good. Boogie Nights, I think what I – the reason I'm picking out now is because really it's – it, I know it's about the 70s porn in- industry. Really it's a movie about family. That's what it's about. And I love those movies that do that. They take – a topic, 70s porn uh, environment, but then turn it into something else. And I think that's just so good. So good. And then The French Connection, just so gritty. Uh, you're looking at New York City from that time. It looks totally different than it does now. Big Gene Hackman fan, big Roy Scheider fan. And I think what also helps is that I continue to believe that the 1970s uh, were the best era for movies, at least in the United States. I'm not going to get into the French cinema of the 1960s, which is very well regarded with Francois Truffaut and others. Uh, But the 1970s were so good for movies uh, in the United States. Uh, Network, which I'm going to mention uh, right at the end of this Q&A part of this Q&A episode. You'll see why it comes up. But Network, Patton, The Godfather movies, Star Wars, Rocky, The Marathon Man, just on and on and on. Even if you want to go in the direction of Smokey and the Bandit or um, you know, just so many great movies, Annie Hall – uh, Mel Brooks, Blazing Saddles, uh, Young Frankenstein, History of the World Part One, just any genre from action to comedy to thrillers, just so many great movies of the 1970s. And then it all ended when Michael Cimino made Heaven's Gate and it all got shut down. I think the 70s were just a really good mixture of both art and commerce. They allowed the artists, the, the directors and actors to really do the work, and the businessmen kind of stayed – or businessmen, now business people these days. But the business people to stay out of it, and that worked for a really long time until Heaven's Gate came along, and it was a huge uh, flop. And that's when the studios said, no, nope, we can't let them do that anymore. And so the studios started getting more involved, and I'm not saying I don't like movies from the 80s. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. I think The Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Full Metal Jacket, you know, a lot of – but it's just – the 70s, just so good. Uh, Just so, so good. And also it's probably because you look at the technology and everything. It's just – you know, and it was in my – within my lifetime, which is kind of crazy. And I forgot all the president's men, uh, Three Days of the Condor. And I've been watching a lot of these movies, like on Paramount Plus, they have a lot of 70s movies. Um, The Parallax View with um, Warren Beatty. The 70s were so good for movies. So, so, so good. So if I had to take take a decade, I would take the 70s, even though The Boogie Boogie Nights came out in the 90s. Hunt for Red October came out in the 90s. The 70s, though... Were were the best? Oh, uh, the French Connection, or no? Uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws, 
uh, American Graffiti. Oh, they're all so good. I could go on and on and on. Next question, and I will admit this is the one question that I got to put in here uh, on my own because I thought that maybe everybody needed a refresher course on how we go about doing what we do here at Unfound in reporting on disappearances and interviewing people. I think maybe I just take that for granted that all of you just know that, and sometimes, and I realize, oh, maybe I need to explain it again. And I think the topic is on my mind of something that went on recently that I will talk more about for the update episode in a couple weeks. But how do we go about covering disappearances? Now, and what I mean by that is. More than just the mechanics of it, you know, reaching out to people, talking to them, put the interviewing uh, outline together, and then interviewing the person, recording it, and then it becomes an episode. Not that's like the very mechanical part of it, but the conceptual, not the theoretical, but the ethical part of how we go about doing what we do here. And of course, maybe. No offense to my assistants, but what I do here being that I'm the one that puts the information together and I interview the people and put the episodes together. But certainly my assistants help me uh, talking things out sometimes and and they're great in bouncing ideas off and just if I have questions about how, you know, thing, how things are going. But what is not the practical mechanical side of it? But the theoretical, the conceptual side of it, how do you go about covering disappearances in a way that is ethical and you believe that you are getting things correct? Now, this is very tough. In in murders, it's not difficult, even though I've never uh, reported on a uh, murder even though I interviewed Steve Pankey, but that's not really what went on there. But it's much easier in murders because you have the body. You know where it's been found. You know that uh, pretty much know, given from information that's out there, of what the murder weapon was. Uh, And because of all this put together, you have so much more information than you would ever have for a disappearance. It's like for a murder, you have all the information that you can kind of collect for a disappearance like social media and pings and video cameras and everything else. But then you get all of this additional information, the murder weapon, you know, where the person is found, you know, and, and, and everything else. And then with all of that, the timeline can so easily but be easily, much more easily assembled. Okay, And the way I would explain it, it's the difference between chess and poker. Chess, and what I mean by that, chess is a, is a, a game in which all of the information is known. There are no secrets. All we know, the players know how the, all the positions, how all the pieces move. Uh, one player can see his, his or her own pieces and the other pieces. The other player can as well. It's all right there. There is no hidden information. It's just figuring out what is the next best move to make to win. Whereas poker is a game in which it is a minimum information problem in that 
yes, I know the cards that I have, but I don't know the cards that my opponent has. And so you have to rely, as you've heard poker players probably talk about, uh, their experience. They look at how much the person is bet. They look at any tails. They might know the history of the player. Is this person a you know really a tight player, very loose player, a, you know liable to play any two pair you know, cards? If we're going to talk about, for example, Texas Hold'em, and even then, even though you collect all that information. When you find you finally find out what the other person had, as far as the cards, you could be totally wrong. But you're just going on as as much information as you get can get, but it's a minimum information problem. You have to make a decision, and you do not know all the facts. You you only know some of them, and you, those might not even be correct. And disappearances. So murders are like chess. Whereas disappearances are like, are like poker to the point that with disappearances, we don't even know if the person's dead, right? As you know, I think most of the, the people who we've covered on Unfound are deceased, but I also know there's no scientific evidence to know that, to show that. Always hold up, hold out hope that they are. But our experience, the way we understand disappearances, the way we understand life, the way we understand people, we look at ourselves, we look at our relationships, we, we know people who are, who are addicts, we know, we, know, we know a lot of things about a lot of different things that all come together in trying to figure out is this person deceased or not. And even if the person we believe is deceased, still there might not have been a crime that was committed. But that doesn't mean just because a crime wasn't committed that we shouldn't – cover these disappearances. Why? Because as we know, there are a lot of family members out there whose lives have been ruined because of them. And they want help trying to figure out what happened. They don't care if it was foul play or not. So, but it's tough. Reporting on disappearances is a difficult, difficult job. And in fact, dare I say it, that's one of the reasons I got involved because they are the toughest of the toughest of the toughest. And you do have to make some logical leaps sometimes. And I also realized that there are just going to be things that guests say that can't be verified, especially if the disappearance is very, very old. As you've come to learn, these guests have experiences with the missing person or a piece of information that nobody else has. And we have to try to decide, is this person telling the truth or not? Now, nobody that I've ever had on Unfound do I believe uh, caused the disappearance. And I'm going to leave, just leave Steve Pankey out of this. But everything else, all the other people that we've covered who are missing, the guests who we've had on there, I don't think have had anything to do with these disappearances. They are not suspects at all. Even so, they may be saying things that only they know. And my job in trying to put a good interview together is trying to be objective as possible 
realizing, though, that maybe some of the topics that we're going to cover cannot be verified ever. If the person saw something or read something or talked to somebody or, or something else, they're just things that you know people die. Of course, with older disappearances, people die. And I, as the, the host, have to determine, can this be talked about or not? And it's a very – it's difficult. It, putting those interview outlines together is difficult. It's not the most difficult part as I've already ta- talked about what's the most difficult part of doing podcasting. But it, it's not easy. Some of them are easy. Some of these disappearances are very straightforward. Others, not so much. And I'll have to weigh the pluses and minuses of whether to talk about something or not. And you have to also have to remember that we don't talk about anything on, on those interviews that the guests don't want to talk about. I can't force them into saying something. I can't force them to talk about uh, a topic that uh, they don't want to talk about. However, you should also know, I mean, if it gets to the point where they just – it's like the bare, 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 bare minimum, and I think they're leaving things out that could be helpful. Then I have to start wondering, is this worth covering this disappearance or not? So it's difficult, and I have to make some judgments as best I can given my experience of talking to people, my experience of reading about disappearances, my knowledge of other disappearances – and deciding whether it's ethical to talk about this topic or not, given that there's no way to verify what this person is saying. It's very difficult. And the way I try to do that is when the person does bring it up, you've heard me ask follow-up questions that may cause you to think that I doubt what the person is saying. I'm not doing it because I doubt it. I'm doing it because I'm trying to be as objective as possible. Sometimes when I do the interviews, I have to play devil's advocate, as I do like in the think tank on Patreon as well. I'm here to help the, uh, the guest, certainly, certainly, certainly. But I have enough experience now to know when they're saying something that maybe all of you are going to wonder about. Well – you saw that and you didn't do anything about it. Well, why? And you've heard me do that over several disappearances. But all of this is the reason, I think, that when you do read about a disappearance, the information is so bland. In fact, we know when it comes to reporting on disappearances in, the ma- in media, newspapers, websites – that they won't even tell they won't even tell you the reader or listener or whoever who the last person was to see the missing person they won't even do that they may not even mention an address they may give the date and time but they won't they'll just say from you know Gilpin Township while well, being from Gilpin Township you know it could be anywhere in Gilpin Township but that's how these things get covered because I just think that reporters, uh, some of them, I think are just trying to crank it out as fast as possible. That's the way media is today. I think that they just 
<clears throat> don't want to really dive into all of this. I also think that they're they also in their own minds are thinking, is this true or is this not true? And of course, none of these reporters have the experience that I do to really ask the right questions to make sure they get it right or as close to right as you can. So whereas if you read an article about a murder, it's probably going to tell you the exact time. It's going to tell you who the person was. It's going to tell you what the murder weapon was and, and everything else. With disappearances, they'll just tell you John Smith went missing on July 4th, 2022 in uh, Clearwater, Florida. Every, be, here's his picture. Be on the lookout for him. I mean, that's, that's really what you get. It's nothing like where he was last seen, where he was going, who was he with, who was the last person to see him. Nothing. And to me, that's just not good enough. And I realized that over the last six and a half years, I've gotten some critical emails and reviews and things and saying that, um, you know, uh, you're making this person look guilty. You're going after this person. That per, you know, it's not factual and, and everything else. And I have to admit, I'm just going to just say this right now. Usually when I get messages and things like that, my first instinct is it just feels to me like these people don't want these disappearances covered at all. It's not that we necessarily got it wrong because these people never tell me through an email what was wrong. They'll say, well, that didn't happen. Your timeline's wrong. This is wrong. That's wrong. This guest got all these things wrong. That has never happened in six and a half years, despite the criticism that I've gotten for the way I go about my business. So this is how we do it. There are a lot of um, calls have to be made by me. And I don't mean phone calls. I mean a lot of decisions, rough decisions, tough decisions on how to frame an interview, how to frame a topic of an interview, and how to make sure that it's not being biased. I'm going to continue to say it till the day I die. We do not go after people on Unfound. Even in those disappearances where we have a disappearance like Angela Green and uh, her husband is telling all these stories that not, nobody can verify. Still, even in that disappearance, which I think is one of the most glaring ones of what happened, even on that one, I think that I played it straight down the line. And I, as I continue to say, I can't help it if facts end up making people look suspicious. I can't help that. But I have questions to ask, and I've made the decision that Whatever it is deserves to be heard. And if I think it is something that may be questionable in your minds, I will try to stay on that topic and ask as many questions as I can uh, until I think that we've covered that disappearance and that particular part of a disappearance objectively. 
and in trying once again to be devil's advocate and trying to point out, well, you saw this, but you didn't do anything about it. Well, why is that? That's just an example. Because it may be, you know, it may be that maybe it's a total lie. But if, but if, um, this is that person's experience. I mean, we have to remember, we all have things that have happened in our lives that we are the only people who experienced them. And nobody else saw it. Nobody else heard it. You are the only person and you go tell other people. Does that mean it's a lie? No. It just means you were the only person who experienced it. The problem we have is there are people who lie about things and have done things. And, you know, the fish story, I caught this huge fish and, oh, man, I got it to the boat and it got off. The, you know, we know what we think of stories like that. But it still could have happened. People are losing fish on fishing lines all the time. But I can assure you before anybody gets interviewed on Unfound that I do my best to make sure that I'm being as objective as possible. And I do not let people skew things in a way that make uh, like going after people. But that is how we go about business. It is not easy. But my knee-jerk reaction every time somebody criticizes how I do an interview, it, I, I just think it just sounds to me like this person doesn't want the topic, the, the disappearance talked about at all. And I'm not going to go along with that. Next question. Do I think that it was Stephen Kocher on the video? Now, I may have to do a little explanation for this one, even though this is a disappearance that Unfound covered, although it was covered from my perspective. I've never spoken to anyone in Stephen's family. Uh, when Unfound covered his disappearance, what was it, 2018? Um, I just talked about when I lived in Las Vegas and my direct interaction with other people uh, trying to figure out what happened to Stephen. I went on a search. I lived very close to where he went missing. I've been up and down that street many times back in the day, 2009 to 2010 when I lived in Las Vegas. Um, technically, he disappeared in Henderson, Nevada. It's a Henderson, Nevada address. And I lived at a Las Vegas address, but they were still very close to each other. But in for that uh, disappearance, there are two videos, but they're from one location. And it shows Stephen's car coming down the road, and then it goes out of view. And then a few moments later, Stephen or somebody, uh, a white guy... Uh, appears on the video walking away from the one camera, and then this person turns the corner, and the camera was on the side of a house. And then seconds later, the same person is seen walking in front of the house by another camera on the same house. And this person walks left off the screen, uh, and that is the last video, and these videos are online all over the place on YouTube. Uh, if you've never seen them, you can just do a search for Stephen Kocher video and you will find it. In fact, I think I have the videos up on uh, the YouTube channel, Unfound's YouTube channel. So the person is asking me that the, – the questioner here for this episode is asking me 
do I think that that was Steven in the video? And I do. I realize that there are people out there who've floating ideas. Well, it could be somebody else, uh, somebody else driving Steven's car and parked it there. And that's the person walking away. And I just, I just do not buy into any of that at all. It's just, so, it's just so complex. It just gets so complex so quickly. Okay, so it's somebody else, and what is this person trying to do? Because even if you accept the idea that it is somebody else, well, that person hasn't been identified either. Somebody walked down into that, down that street. And despite all the police uh, interviewing people on that street, that person was never identified either. So either way, I guess this is a mystery. But what I understand about Steven, his build, his uh, skin color, his height, and comparing it to the person that is seen on the video, I do think that that is Steven. Oh, I'm also inclined to believe that if it was somebody else, the person would not have acted like that person did in the video, walking very slowly, parking a car in a, a populated area uh, it, during the daytime. Now, yes, seemingly nobody saw Stephen park there, but if it's Stephen, then it's just a coincidence. Whereas somebody who's just staging Stephen's car there um, why even take the chance of being seen by somebody who was also, for example, walking on the street at the same time? There's no way that person faking being Stephen would know that. So I think it's just too complex. Uh, although I realize on Web Sleuths and elsewhere, you will find people throwing that out there. I, You probably will not be surprised by that. I think that's just people looking for something to talk about. Next question, and this one is a little more difficult than the Stephen Kocher question. What happened to Richard Patrone and Danielle Imbo? I might have even had this question on a prior Q&A episode. I didn't go back and check. Uh, if you are not familiar with their disappearances, although it, my perception is many, many people are familiar with them, especially if you're a, a true crime podcast listener. But just to go over the facts very quickly, and I'll get into more maybe why Unfound hasn't covered this yet, covered their disappearances yet. Uh, Daniel Imbo and uh, Richard Patrone were boyfriend and girlfriend. They were not married. They went out on the evening of February 19th of 2005. They were actually from New Jersey, but they went into Philadelphia, so South Jersey, went into Philadelphia for dinner to have a good time. And they met friends uh, there, and they left between 11.30 and 11.45 p.m., so at night. And uh, I'm just reading from the Charlie Project. They stated they were going to Imbo's home in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, and neither of them have been heard from again. Um, they were in Richard's Dodge, Dakota, uh, which is also still missing. And so we're talking about a disappearance that just passed its 18th year of being unsolved. And so the two went missing, and the vehicle is also still missing. They were in Philadelphia trying to get back, seemingly allegedly, 
to Mount Laurel, New Jersey, which is not a long drive. Of course, it's not right down the street either. A lot of allegations, as you might suspect, in this. Uh, None of their uh, cards or easy pass or anything were ever used. Uh, Their cell phones were not helpful, at least from what it says on the Charlie Project. And as the Charlie Project also says, authorities have questioned associates of both people. Um, Danielle's estranged husband, so it seems that she was still married at the time uh, that she was going out with with Richard. So we have to take a look at that. Relationships are the number one cause of disappearances and might make sense. And on the other hand, um, there have been allegations. Could it have something – this disappearance have something to do with the business that Richard's family was in, like a bakery or something? Were they having problems there? I've read a little bit about that. Once again, once again, just speculation. I'm not sure there are any facts to support that at all. I also don't see any facts to support the idea that Daniel's estranged husband had anything to do with it either. Um, but certainly can't rule that out given what we know about disappearances. Uh, it's also stated that before they disappeared, uh, Danielle had um, – told her husband, who was estranged, I don't know if we can believe this or not, because who would know this but her husband? Is he going to tell the truth? The patron that she wanted space from both of them, she was reportedly considering ending a relationship with uh, Richard Patron altogether. But it seems, once again, this uh, was coming from the estranged husband, so we may have to be doubtful about all that, even if he had nothing to do with his uh, her. Uh, and Richard's disappearances. Uh, you should know that this is a disappearance I've talked about very often with my assistant, Cherie. And I think that I've spoken to my assistant, Emily, who's mainly the outreach person here at Unfound. I uh, have not had any success uh, reaching out to the family yet. Uh, they've done media appearances over the years. And... We just haven't been successful yet. Happens. Very, very common. But I certainly would be interested in covering uh, their disappearances. We've covered the disappearances of couples before. Most recently, Keith Call and uh, Sandra Haley. So we do have experience in this area. But as far as what I think about this, I, I have to be honest that I've known about their disappearances for a long time, even well before I started Unfound. And I think originally that this uh, was foul play. However, now almost 290 disappearances into Unfound's existence, I'm much more open to different ideas, other ideas. I'm not saying the foul play isn't the f- still f- uh, number one, but... When you read about as many disappearances as I have, you start realizing that if it was foul play, it was a very, very complicated plan. We have to start visualizing what exactly happened when they left that place and went back to Richard's Dakota. Was it, was just the husband, Daniel's husband himself, waiting for them? That doesn't quite seem believable. 
He was able to control both of them and steal the truck. And nobody saw this, no gunshots or anything like that. It just doesn't seem realistic. In addition, even if we're to think, let's say, I'm not saying I necessarily believe this, but if the husband had help doing this or even got people to do this, what did they do? Follow Danielle and Richard to this place or did somebody know that they were going to be there and then just start cruising around the streets looking for Richard's truck that night and waited for them to come back? Once again, it still gets very complicated very, very quickly. Because we have to start thinking about, well, why even bother taking the truck? Why not just take them? Because taking the truck only adds complexity to the whole situation. And it, uh, you know, it's just one more way to get caught by taking somebody's car. This is always the argument I have with Jennifer Cassie's too. Everybody, you know, everybody wants to believe, well, the person who hurt Jennifer Casey took her car. Why would somebody do that? If she is the goal, then why get her car involved? I don't know. So that's the same way I kind of feel about this. I'm not saying foul play didn't happen, but we really have to connect all the dots regarding the truck as well when we know that it would just have been easier for... If somebody was waiting for them to just pull up to them on the street and yank them off the street or just gun them down in the street, it's Philadelphia. That would not be unusual for people to get shot in the street. So this kind of – this is the same things that I think about regarding their disappearances now that I would not have considered, let's say, 10 years ago. So – Given, though, what we know about disappearances regarding vehicles now with Esther Westenbarger and even disappearances we've not covered on Unfound that have been solved, and I realize people have really looked at the entire area between where they were and where they were allegedly going to Mount Laurel, New Jersey, I think we have to be open to the idea that they changed their plans and that something happened when they changed their plans. That they were going down some road and uh, they had probably been doing some drinking. Was Richard drinking and driving and flew off the road somewhere? They decided to go for a drive or maybe she really didn't have to be on that night. Maybe they decided to go somewhere else, rent a hotel room somewhere. And in the process of driving there, drove off the road and never to be seen again. And they and the car and the truck haven't been found. I'm much more open to that now than I was when I first heard about their disappearances, whenever that was, and I really can't remember when that happened. But I've known about their disappearances for a long time, and I realized that that route that they would have taken has been gone over and over and over. Well, we just have to be open to the idea that they went somewhere else. Because even if we're to think, well, somebody was waiting for them, so they, they drove back to her place and somebody was waiting, it's still the same issue of the vehicle. It's still the same issue of the truck. You know, why get involved in that on the spur of the moment? In contrast to, if we want to think about Eric Franks' disappearance, where that was much easier to set up because Eric was going over, you know, he was up there in Michigan going over to Kendra's all the time, and 
I think what we all know now is just one of the times he showed up there, something went wrong, and they, she and her man killed him and gave Gerald Rutledge the car. That's much easier to understand than what we have here because we have two people missing. And really, there's no reason to get rid of the truck under those circumstances. You could have just let the truck in front of her place and take the whisk the two away, and it would still be a very confounding disappearance. So that's about the best answer uh, I can give you. Um, lots of rumors. More open to a non-foul play theory than I was 10 years ago. Like I said, I'm guessing foul play is still number one in my mind, given what I think and know about the relationship at least Danielle had with her estranged husband. But if you were to ask me this question a few years from now, it very well may be that the an, a non-foul play theory finally makes it into first place, first place in my mind. Next question. Non-true crime related. I know you are from Pennsylvania, uh, Leechburg, Pennsylvania, and then you moved to Las Vegas in 1998. I'm putting in, throwing in some of those dates and things there. And then to Florida, and I moved here in 2011. What prompted your moves to both Las Vegas and then Florida, work, school, relationship? Uh, when it comes to Pennsylvania, Uh, you know, you have to remember I was 27 at the time, so uh, a little more than half the age I am now, which is just mind-boggling. Just was not really pleased with everything that was going on. I was still living at home at 27 years old, and uh, I was working for my family, which I grew, grew to really, really not like. And in the year before, in 97, my last grandparent had died. Uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother died in May of 97. And my parents, my father retired in 1993. My parents were traveling and everything. So a lot of times I had the house to myself, but still. And I just saw an opportunity to get the heck out because my one of my best friends to this day, Brad, uh, and his girlfriend at the time, who is now his wife, their roommate was moving out in May of 98 from their apartment in Las Vegas, and they needed a new roommate, and I saw an opportunity to leave. Uh, very much upsetting uh, the young woman that I was dating at the time, but happy for her. She recovered very nicely and got married and has, I think, at least one child now. She's doing very well for herself, very happy for her. But she was really pissed off at the time. <laughs> That's the way it goes. Uh, but I most likely did her a huge favor by moving away. And uh, so that's why I, it was just an opportunity, 27 years old, and have an opportunity in a room's already rated, waiting with you, for you uh, when I moved to Las Vegas and going to be living with at least one person who I knew very, very well, and that was my buddy Brad. And I lived with them. I moved in with them in May. It was May 12th, 1998 that I reached Las Vegas. 
and we all lived together until early January of 99. And then I got my own place uh, down on East Tropicana, like at East Tropicana in Mountain Vista, where I lived there for some years. And But I have to tell you that first year living in Las Vegas was no fun. Uh, that's where all the 7-Eleven comes, stuff comes in. I almost moved back to Pennsylvania. Thank goodness I did it, be, didn't because it ended up being uh, – sticking it out ended up being several years of wondrous time. Now, though, what happened, though, then moving from Las Vegas to Florida, um, it was it got to be a little bit like in Pennsylvania that felt just like I had fallen into a little bit of a rut. I thought I needed a a change to kind of boost things, uh, you know, switch the style up, got a little too comfortable and a bunch of things put together just – And I'll be honest, even though the last over 11 years have been really decent here in Florida, there is a part of me that regrets moving from Las Vegas. That might have been a decision I made too hastily. The one I made moving from Pennsylvania to Las Vegas was absolutely 100% correct. I cannot say that about the way I look back at moving from Las Vegas to here, even though Florida has been fine. I have a great place here, as some of you know. And being near my brother and a lot of good times and disc golf and everything else. But it's a little slow here for me as a single guy. So um, that's uh, just maybe I should have probably thought about it a little harder than I did. But being I was probably looking back at my move from Pennsylvania to Las Vegas and what it really did for me ultimately – and thought that that was going to happen moving from Las Vegas to here. And that's not really what has happened. Once again, it has not been bad. But it's not been – it was not the revelation that moving from Pennsylvania to Las Vegas was. It surely hasn't been. That's nothing against anybody in particular, any friends that I've made here or my family or anything else. Just – uh, and if I think if I had the right opportunity to move back to Las Vegas, I would. But I start hearing about how they're restricting water and everything and you know Lake Mead and everything. I start wondering maybe I need to hold off and see what happens there. So that, those are the reasons that I moved. Uh, I can't really blame it on work or school or relationship or anything else. It was really just based on my feelings about how I wanted my life to go. So there you go. What motivated me to get into podcasting? I will tell you, and this is a, this is a new story. I know I've talked a lot about starting Unfound and everything, but uh, this is a new story, and I, I don't know why I haven't stated it before. But what really put my mind on podcasting wasn't even podcasting. Uh, the radio station in Las Vegas, KXNT, in about 2007, 2008, started a radio host competition where people off the street could come in and compete. They would give you topics to think to talk about, and then they would be like a competition to see who actually ends up being like an assistant host or something like that. 
And the first year that they had it, I missed it. In fact, I can remember where I was. Uh, I was in a cargo van working the job that I had one day and turned that station on, and they were in the middle of having this competition. And I was like, how did I not know about this? What? I was so ticked off. And so I made sure I didn't miss the, when they had it a year later. And, if, and I know that they had it for at least two more years in which I competed. And to be honest, I, I got like past the first level that, where they narrowed people down and I did not get that. I did not get to the point where they would actually have some of the people on air to interact with the, already the host and that's how – People would be picked out. I didn't get to that part. So there were like 100 people, and then it got narrowed down to like 20, and I think I made like the top 20, and then they narrowed it down to like five or six, and I didn't get, I didn't get it. And that happened two years in a row. But it did give me uh, a taste, and I can look back at it now, and maybe things were just meant to work out this way. I mean, not succeeding in winning that. Um, because I don't know if any of those uh, – I know, of course, there were winners who ended up working for that station. I really don't know what they've done with their career since. But I don't know if they have uh, a podcast that gets over a million downloads a year and everything else. So it just took some time. It took till 2016 for, all to ha- for it to all happen. But that kind of gave me my first taste. It was something that I wanted to do had been in my mind, and then there is a local radio station having this competition. I miss it, and I was like, I'm not missing it next year, a year later. And unfortunately, looking back, and it probably was not at my best, needed to learn a lot about talking to people, talking into a microphone. But that's kind of eventually, and then podcasting came along. But I think that's what first put podcasting in my mind, and and some of you know I've done some other things regarding audio before I started Unfound. So um, it's probably, like I said, back 2007, something like that, 2008, 2009, is what first put it in my mind that I would like to do that. I could be good at it because of my background in performing and writing and everything. So that's what motivated me. Next question is, was there a particular case that really caught your attention, prompting you to want to discuss it? As I stated, uh, when I interviewed Trisha Griffith from WebSluice, when she was on Unfound and then when I went on her YouTube channel a couple weeks ago, first real recollection of a missing persons case that caught my eye or caught my ear was Jody Hoosentrout, like of a regular person. Of course, I knew about Jimmy Hoffa, Amelia Earhart, and some others. But of a regular person, quote-unquote regular person, uh, Jody Hoosentrout, and I, I don't know why. Uh, I, I know it got a lot of coverage back in the mid-'90s, and that was one of the motivations for me getting on Web Sleuths, and I was one of the when findjody.com first started in the early 2000s, I was one of the first people to sign up for the forum that they had on there. I would say I was like in the first 10 or something, some crazy number. I think that was it. 
that really put my mind on the disappearances of just everyday people. Not Although, of course, she was on TV. She was famous locally, but she was not famous nationally. Still kind of a, a regular person like the rest of us. Um, and I think that that's really around the time, mid-1990s, late-1990s, that I became aware that Oh, there's a lot of people missing, and even though I knew from my own area of Pennsylvania, Sherry Mahan went missing, a little girl, uh, in 1985, about a half hour from where I grew up in Leechburg, Pennsylvania, but really wasn't an adult at the time. It wasn't – when I became an adult, then Judy Ho- Jody Hoosentrude goes missing, kind of put it in my head. So it probably started there uh, for wanting to look into the disappearances of just everyday people. And so it's going on almost uh, 30 years now. But as I continue to say, my first interest in disappearances started when I was in the 1970s watching In Search Of. But probably Jody Hoosentrude was the one that hit me as an adult that wanted me to start looking up other disappearances of just regular people. And then it came to Web Sleuths. Jennifer Cassie, I wrote a lot about her on there going back in the day, and then Stephen Kocher a few years later, and just kind of went from there. Next question. Do I have a 95 job other than Unfound, or is it possible to make a living as a full-time podcaster. I'm only asking because of the amount of research and time it must take for each episode. Uh, this is all that I do for money. And this is why earlier I answered the question, what's the most difficult thing about putting the podcast together? And that's making it profitable, something we're still laboring to do here. Uh, but this is all I do. And this is why you know, maybe within the last six months, eight months, you've heard me maybe talk more about the finances of Unfound and talk about Patreon and, and support on YouTube and PayPal and, and merchandise and everything else. Um, is it possible? So that's, this is uh, the only paying job that I have. I think a lot about it. I work a lot uh, on it. And it is surely more than a nine to five job. <laughs> Uh, maybe it's more like, uh, 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. the next morning. Surely not 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's more like 9 a.m. to 5 a.m. the next morning, and then you take four hours off and then you're back at it again. That's really more what's like. Um, and I work on Unfound every day of the week, no matter where I am, uh, no matter what I'm doing. So this is all that I do. What, how that is, uh, for other podcasters, I don't know. Is it possible to make a living as a full-time podcaster? Uh, The generic answer is yes. The technical answer is it really, really, really depends. Is it possible? Yes. Do most people do that? No. No. Um, it's, It's just the way it is. And, uh, so is it, it is, you just have to work really hard at it. And it's something that I'm still trying to figure out, uh, myself, even though it's six and a half years into unfound and we have 350 episodes and, 
uh, 290 disappearances covered and on and on and on. All the appearances and going for the Steve Pankey trail twice and everything else. It's still something that I'm trying to figure out with the help of my assistants and other people. Uh, because it's really not going to happen what you would might call naturally. It is certainly not a build it and they will come situation when it comes to money. Certainly a lot of listeners and everything. Certainly, that helps, but it, it, as I'm finding out, it takes a lot more than that. So I'm all in the person that says I'm only asking because of the amount of research and time it must take for each episode. Yeah, yeah. If I had a nine to five job or something, no, uh, you could still do the podcast. It just wouldn't be like it is, and it surely would not be uh, weekly. Might be able to do one monthly, but if nine to five, you have those obligations, and who really works nine to five these days and makes any decent money? You want to make any decent money these days? You got to work eight to six or eight to seven, eight a.m. to seven p.m. and maybe filling in some weekends and things. So, uh, for most jobs, so you would not, be, I would not be able to do this weekly. There's no way. What do I do to be proactive to not lose my voice? What I've discovered after 50-some years of having this voice is my voice is very, very resilient. Maybe much to the dismay of some people (coughs) who know me, I've never lost my voice in my life, ever. All the times I've been sick, although I don't get sick very often, asthma, coughs, Colds, sore throats, everything else, my voice never lost it. And yes, I know that uh, I can be loud very unintentionally. It just – voice tends to carry. And guess what? That's the way my my brothers and my sisters' voices are too. That we don't have to – my perception is that we don't have to use a lot of effort for our voices to be loud. In fact, it's, it takes much more effort for our voices to be soft. Is that it must be genetic? It does have something to do with our vocal cords or the breathing or something. I don't know. But uh, I just find my voice to be very, very resilient. I can yell very, very loud. Nobody else four on a disc golf course louder than I do, and I have a lot of experience. What is also might in what's going on with my voice right now is I am taking some voice lessons online, a, a course, because it's something that I've always wanted to do, and to be able to sing a lot of the songs that I like from like Iron Maiden and Judas Priest. Well, you just can't naturally do that. Most people can't naturally do that. So I'm about 70-some days into this course, which runs for like 300-some days. So I'm not even a quarter of the way through it. And I can already tell there, even just in my everyday voice, there are changes that my voice is even getting even more efficient than it already was. But to answer the question, I don't do anything. I don't uh, sip hot tea before I do a podcast I don't limit my talking on the day I'm going to be doing recording. Uh, 
the voice is uh, what it is, and it's just genetic. Next question. What is the most mysterious case Unfound is covered? I don't like putting cases in a hierarchy. Uh, in this way, I don't mind it. Uh, you know that, you know, what are your top five favorite disappearances? I don't answer that question. In fact, anybody, I, I got to tell you, anybody who asks me that, it's, it's a little insulting. But I don't mind this question. What is the most mysterious? So because as we know, there are many uh, disappearances that we've covered on Unfound where it seems like we have a pretty good feeling on what happened. And so when you look at the definition of mysterious or mystery in the dictionary, pick one. I don't know necessarily if they are mysterious. Certainly the person's still missing. It is a mystery as to where that person is and what happened to that person. But as far as deciding whether it was foul play or a walk-off or a suicide or an accident, a lot of these disappearances, you can narrow it down, in my opinion, pretty, pretty, pretty close to what actually happened. Of course, we're being maybe surprised all the time. Maybe recently we're surprised with Brandon Robert, Brandon Roberts. But with Matthew Braswell, who was recently discovered, remains were recently discovered, I don't think anybody's surprised. Very sad. But I don't know much, how much of a mystery that was, and we're not surprised by the outcome. Uh, Daniel Villarreal, once again, very sad. I feel horrible for his family. But not a surprise. It might be a surprise where he was found, but I don't think anybody's surprised that he was deceased and that it wasn't too far from where the, the second car wreck happened. And then Kayleen Oling, this is another one, horrible, feel horrible for her family. Maybe a little surprised on where her remains were found, but I don't think there was any doubt that she was deceased and th there's a reason to believe that it was foul play, especially since the remains were found. I've been told on the property of a relative of the guy that she was dating, this much older man. So when it comes to mysterious case, the one I, I continue to go to, and I will explain my reasoning, is Jason Jolkowski, even though it's one of the first ones that Unfound ever covered. The reason it continues to come into my mind, and I could list a few others, but we'll just stick to Jason's because it's, it's a very good example of being able to explain this, is Jason's disappearance is mysterious in my mind because it lacks all of the things we usually associate with disappearances. Jason wasn't in a relationship um, he didn't have any addictions. He had a learning disability, but didn't seem like it was an overt one being that he could do this radio show at his local college. And I remember getting to hear it back in the, at the time. And I don't think you would know that he had some sort of learning disability by listening to him. Um, uh, grew up in a, a great family. Uh, it matters, in my opinion, when it comes to disappearances, that parents are still together. And he had a, a brother that he was close to. 
It's in a decent neighborhood. His disappearance happened during the day. He wasn't having to walk through the woods or anything like that right down the street. It's only a, a, a half a mile. And in addition, the person who was supposed to pick him up seemed to have done what all of us would do. Jason didn't show up, went and called the work. You know, what do you want me to do? It just lacks Everything, everything, everything that we usually hear in all of these other disappearances. Usually what we hear about what? A guy like maybe like Tyler North in a relationship, uh, you know, and his ex-wife seemingly lured him somewhere and killed him. No allegations of that of any uh, girl that was trying to, you know, kill Jason, like some ex-girlfriend or something. Uh, No addictions. I don't think we're – no drug addict, you know, none of that stuff that – comes up sooner or later, uh, one week or another. We may not talk about addiction this week. Instead, we're talking about a woman in a bad relationship. Next week, we may talk about addiction, but we don't talk about a bad relationship. They just flip all over over, the place. And then we talk about mental health issues, which Jason didn't seem to have. This is why it really, really, really sticks out. Now, you may say, well, why not Joshua Guimond? Isn't that as puzzling to you? Well, I would say that it's certainly been made puzzling. I would say over the years that people have really, really tried to dig a lot of stuff up and allegations or anything, and I've listened to all of it, and I've read it like the rest of you, and it's not that convincing to me. Um... So his is, in my mind, does not is not is mysterious. Now, if Joshua Guimond had disappeared from campus while he was with his buddies, and he at an eleven a.m. instead of eleven p.m. or what it was, and it was daytime, and some of these other things were not going on with Joshua that seemed like they were going on. And by the way, I'm still not convinced that he was gay, despite that being a very popular allegation and a lot of people looking into that over the past year. I'm not convinced of it, and I really don't care whether what his sexuality was one way or the other. But to me, it feels like going off on a tangent to nowhere. But so that's why maybe Joshua Guimond's uh, disappearance doesn't rise to the level of mysterious as Jason Jolkowski's does. So that that continues to be it. Um, and like I said, I don't talk about my theories too publicly. I write about them on Patreon, uh, very, you know, kind of a private forum. But I urge you to go there and read them. Patreon.com forward slash unfound podcast for the low, low, low price of $2 a month. You can see what I've written about all sorts of different disappearances. But I think what I'm saying Regarding Jason Jolkowski's, it was a very, 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 very unique set of circumstances that caused Jason to disappear. On top of the fact, given that he had a learning disability to a certain level, I'm not even sure that we can – I don't know if we can even think about well, let's say he walked off. Let's say he was depressed that day and he wanted to harm himself. I don't know, given his learning disability, if that 
is something he could have formulated in his mind. He certainly could interact with people. But that ends up being you know, somewhat of a complex plan. And on top of it, being that he's still missing whatever plan he concocted, the rest of us haven't been able to figure it out. And I just don't know if he had that level of intelligence to pull that off that day. I'm not you know, trying to demean him or anything, but it was his own mother. Yeah, he had some issues. I just don't know how far those issues went. It just didn't seem to me that he would be able to like think this through. Okay, on this day, I don't have my car and – when this person, I'm, you know, I'm supposed to get picked up by this person, I'm going to leave the house. But instead, I'm not going to walk toward the car. I'm going to go in the opposite direction, and I know this area where I can harm myself. I just don't know if Jason Jolkowski was capable of thinking about all that. The problem is the opposite is also true. What then happened between his house and him getting picked up that would have caused him to disappear? And even though they went to every neighbor and everything else and – Seemingly, nothing popped up on investigators' radars. This is why uh, I put it as the number one most confusing slash mysterious disappearance that Unfound has covered. Next question. Ed, Ed, what are your feelings on using the word missing persons expert? Due to the aspect of having to continually learn about disappearances and the understanding of human nature as it ever so evolves. This is a very good question. I'm glad, and I know I'm not going to say who uh, asked me this question, but uh, this is a person who has a history of asking me very, very good questions, so I should not be surprised. Uh, missing ask- persons expert is something that I've started using maybe within the last year. Maybe even going back a couple years, and I'm guessing maybe there are people out there. I'm guessing anybody who's listening to this podcast probably doesn't mind it, but there may be others, uh, haters, trolls, and even just recently somebody posted something like that somewhere else about you know how you know how can you be a missing persons expert? I mean, what does that mean? How is that even a thing? I ask you this: I've been doing this for six and a half years. 290 disappearances. If would you not consider a a, a person who works on uh, drains and pipes after six and a half years to be an expert plumber? That doesn't mean there there wouldn't be new things coming up in the in the realm of plumbing on the earth, new ways to get water out of houses or buildings and into the sewers and everything. I'm, more efficiently, I'm guessing they're coming up with new technology all the time. But at some point, the person who is showing up uh, to unclog your drain becomes uh, becomes an expert. Maybe not the first time, but maybe by the hundredth time of showing up, a, a, toil- a toilet, something's going on. You know, there's water leaking into the ground of the foundation of your house or whatever else. At some point, they become an expert. In addition, we have to remember, I've been doing this for six and a half years. That's longer than going to law school, if you, you know, if you can get it done in three years. And aren't lawyers considered to be experts in the law? Six and a half years is longer than going to medical school. 
And aren't doctors considered to be experts in medicine? And given that lawyers and doctors and you know, and plumbers devote their lives to doing whatever they're doing, they consider themselves experts. And this is all that I do. This is what I've devoted. This is my work. Yes, I disc golf. Yes, I'm taking some singing classes. Yeah, I play a little guitar and everything. But unfound is and disappearance is what dominates my life. I think at some point you do become an expert. And it, you know, it's arbitrary, I suppose. But I know that there are a lot of people, for example, Dr. Telesco, who have no problem with that term. And she's, she's the retired NYPD officer, not me. So that's just an example. So yes, it is evolving. But, and I'm all, and I'm learning just along with the rest of you, but you know what? Doctors are learning all the time too, and lawyers are learning all the time too, but they still consider themselves to be experts at medicine and law. You know how I know? Because I know what they charge. That's how I know they think that they know something because of what they charge per hour. So even though their their areas of study are changing, everybody's areas of study are changing. So I don't mind using that. And in fact, I've gotten to the point where the way I think about Unfound is I'm not a podcaster uh, necessarily talking about disappearances. I'm a missing persons expert with a podcast. That's where I am now uh, with my mentality. So those are my feelings on, on this. And I think on top of everything else, I think that if you ask many of Unfound's guests, the, the um, help that I've given them, given them behind the scenes, the advice is better advice than they've gotten anywhere else. And so I think that counts as being an expert on this as well. Next question, what would you say is the most common way you find cases and guests for your show? Uh, by reaching out to them. And although sometimes it's networking, a guest will let some other family know, hey, he's a good guy to talk to. That happens. But most often, I mean, 90% of the time, we're reaching out to people. Also, what is the typical timeline from the first contact to dropping the episode, or does it vary a lot? It varies quite a bit. Um, If we go back to the disappearance of Dorian Myers by her sister Donna Jean Cap, who is now deceased, uh, I first spoke to her in like the fall of 2016, and she did not appear on Unfound till the summer of 2019. As an example, uh, maybe another good example is Cameron Remmer. I first talked to his family in early 2019, and that episode did not come out until the end of 2019. Uh, Sandra Haley and Keith Call, which is the two-part episode that came out. At the end of 2022, I started talking to their families in the summer of 2022. So it can be really long. On the other hand, um, for example, like with the recent with the recent episode of Alpha Turner, I spoke to his sister, and within less than a month, uh, I interviewed her. Just depends. Really depends on 
what's going on with other things, other episodes I might already have lined up. Also has a lot to do with if the guest tells me something that I think is going to be very complicated to talk about um, on the air, something that I don't quite understand and the person can't really explain it to me in, in clear terms then, but I know, you know we have to talk about that. Then I will take it upon myself to learn whatever I can about that. A lot of times that has something to do with, um, you know, an expertise that is outside of dis- dis- uh, disappearances. Maybe we, um, what would be a good example of that? Or maybe another example, like, for example, Cameron Remmers certainly could have covered his disappearance. In a quicker amount of time, certainly. But what happened was that in the process of getting the information that his family sent me, what caught my eye was that about the time he was getting kicked out of the Fairmont Hotel in San Francisco is when he stopped using his phone. Well, I got to look into that. What is up with that? And so I started looking into the Fairmont Hotel, and that's eventually what led me down the road of figuring out who the who the security guards were that night and finding out how they acted toward myself and my assistant Cherie kind of blowing us off and the one even being uh you know calling me crazy and everything so just depends you know uh going back maybe to that previous question about Jason Jokowski what is the most mysterious uh disappearance this kind of goes into this question because just about any disappearance has uh, – of course, it's a mystery. The person is missing, missing. but there are, there are mysteries connected to certain facts. And if I think that stating that fact is just going to leave a little too much up in the air, then I'm going to labor to get to the bottom of it and have a better understanding of it than I do. And once again, using Cameron Remmers as a disappearance – You talk about a person going missing at the same time or stop using the cell phone at the same time that the person gets kicked out of a building. To me, as the interviewer, you just can't leave that out there without looking into it more. If we had just stated that in that episode and just left it there, many of you would be thinking, well, I want to hear more about that. And so I tried to get more uh, about that. Unfortunately, they're just things that come up. You just there's no way to research the research them more. And sometimes there are ways to get a better understanding, and that has a lot to do with how quickly an episode is going to come to air once I talk to a person for the first time. Next question: In respect to Unfound, when building a podcast, what do you wish you did earlier? Uh, I cover all of this. In my upcoming teachable course, How to Podcast Better Than Anyone, at the end of each section, I offer some stories about putting Unfound together and all the mistakes that I did, and there were many. Um, But as far as the specific question, what do I wish I did earlier? Probably wish I would have started the think tank earlier because I, I think the people who are involved in it enjoy it so much. We've come like a little club there and would love to for you to be part of it at Patreon. 
but talking to the listeners in a very private setting where everybody feels – everybody knows it's not going to be made public. People can talk without being judged, and there's no worry of any trolls or anything. That has helped me out so much. Uh, those people in the think tank have helped my own understanding. I'd like to think that I've helped their understanding, but they've also helped my understanding of you, the audience. What do you hear when the guest says something? Because what I hear sometimes is different from what you hear, even though we're hearing the same words. So that is probably the, the, the main thing as far as that. Uh, as far as me understanding disappearance is better and doing better job as a host. But as far as just the mechanics of putting the podcast together... There are so many things that I should have never, ever, ever done, but you will have to uh, get the course to uh, find out what those things are. And it's not quite out yet, by the way. I'm thinking beginning of June at teachable.com. Next question. Do you have any future plans to, again, collaborate with other podcasters, YouTube creators, in the true crime community? Uh, this person says that I enjoyed your collaboration with John Lorden. I, I'm not ruling it out. Uh, of course, just recently I had Trisha Griffith on an episode, and then I was on her. So is that kind of a collaboration? I guess not, being that we di- we've not worked on a specific disappearance together. Maybe we will. I, I don't know if she has any time for that, but – Maybe we could somewhere down the road because I I got along very well with her, but nothing in the plans, no solid plans right at this point as I'm recording this in early April of 2023. Just depends. You know, we all have our schedules. Each podcaster has his or her own schedule. We're working independently of each other, although I am sometimes. It does catch my attention sometimes when some of you tell me, well, you just covered this disappearance, and two weeks later, that place uh, covered the same disappearance. And as you know, I don't pay attention to what other people are doing, so it's not like I'm ripping off or following other people because I don't know what they're doing anyway. But I don't know if all other podcasters do the same that I do. I'm inclined to believe they do pay attention to what other hosts are doing. I do not. Anything that I learn is from all of you or my assistants. But right now, nothing at this time. I'm not against it. If somebody were to contact me and ask, I would, of course, look into the – if it's something that I already know. Of course, it's John Lorden. I wouldn't have to do any looking into his background or anything. But if it's somebody new, if it's somebody that's new, just new to true crime podcasting, I would certainly need to – know more about the person, about the way they go about their business and everything before I would ever agree to anything. So um, just everything just has to line up perfectly, I think, for collaborations. We're really going to work together. That's different than somebody just like maybe like Trisha did coming on to Unfound and getting interviewed or me going on to her YouTube channel. We talk collaboration, working on a disappearance together talking to people, putting facts together and everything. Just so many things have to line up for that to happen, and there's just nothing that is lined up right now. 
What climate do I prefer? Las Vegas or the Gulf Coast of Florida? Wow. Um, there is a distinct difference. I don't want anybody to think that just because Florida is hot, just because Las Vegas is hot, that they are the, the same. And I don't even mean in the way they talk about what Las Vegas. Yeah, it's 115, but it's a dry heat, which is kind of a joke. Um, there's a distinct difference between the two places. Having lived there for 13 and a half years and you know, going to be coming up on 12 years here, which I can't even believe. Um, there are pluses and minuses. First, you have to understand that Las Vegas weather will kill you. If you're out in Las Vegas summer in July or August and you don't have water, you will die. Whereas here in Florida, the weather's going to be hot, but it's not going to kill you um, because it's very wet. The air is, of course, very humid, and it doesn't suck the the water out of you like Las Vegas weather does. And that's what they talk about, a dry heat. Well, that is actually worse. They, people may joke about it, but that's the dangerous kind of heat. Florida heat is not dangerous. Yeah, if you go without water for long enough, you're going to die. Yes. But to me, being outside on a Florida day, even when I've disc golfed in tournaments, I mean, I played in a disc golf tournament a few years in a row, like 2014 through 2016 or 2017, something like that, over in Daytona Beach in July, like the weekend after. It was always the weekend after July 4th. And it was hot, and I wish I was inside in the air conditioning, but it wasn't miserable, not to me. Whereas I spent many days outside working in Las Vegas in the summer, lugging computers around and printers and everything. That is miserable, and it's dangerous and everything else. Now, which one do I prefer? Probably... Overall, if we're going to take every day of the year, you have to consider all of it, probably Florida because in Las Vegas, it does get cold. It does snow, and it will get down into the 20s in Las Vegas. I don't even know if people realize that. It gets up to 115 in July and August, but it'll go down to 20 degrees in January. Of course, here in Florida, it doesn't do that. We go mainly between a low, at least here at this part of Florida, like between 45, high 40s, and like 95. So it's not as big of an extreme. But you'll notice I'm not complaining about the Vegas heat. I'm just saying it's dangerous. <laughs> uh, I'm much more bothered by how cold it gets in Las Vegas than how hot it gets. In Las Vegas, but I haven't been back since I moved from there, but it would be cool to go back sometime soon. So I have to say overall, Florida, but I think I could be convinced that the rest of the year besides the winter, I might prefer Las Vegas. We're getting close to the end uh, here. Um, just, uh, maybe uh, one more big time question. Uh, like I said, uh, you'll see I, I, the reason I left it for last. But uh, the question is, will you be letting your hair grow as long as possible or are you keeping it trimmed to maintain its current length? Uh, as I like to say, 
uh, if you don't know. Uh, and, and it's funny. We're kind of, you know, it seems here in 2023, uh, we, as, as it's pretty nice, we continue to get new listeners, new viewers. And it's funny that these new people do not know what I look like. And I've had some new people within the last month uh, come into the live show, and I think the, the the comments are there. If I've gotten it other places, but they don't know what I look like, and maybe they think I'm a lot younger than I am. Uh, even though I'm 52, my voice I think still sounds like it did when I was in my early 30s. And people's voices, for the most part, stay the same until you get old, and maybe you start having some breathing problems, and your lungs become less efficient. But um, the hair is what usually gets them when they see me for the first time. And as I continue to say that I'm growing my hair for all the guys that can't. Uh, there are, as you know, uh, there are a lot of men in their 50s who have lost their hair. And I, as I've said many times, that... The choice between I'd rather, you know, I've I've actually made this joke to people uh, when I've joked about not playing very good disc golf sometimes, and I always say, you know what, I'd rather be a bad disc golfer and have all this hair than me be a great disc golfer and not have any hair and not be able to grow hair. I, that's where I am. I'm I'm a kind of a vain person, and that's not against all you ball guys off there out there. Own it, love it, happy for all of you. But let's just be honest. If you could still grow a full head of hair, you would be doing that. It's fine. And so I just think I'm just doing what a lot of other guys can't and trying to enjoy it. And I am enjoying it, even though my dad hates it and some other people hate it. Um, And if my mother was alive, she would surely shoot me. Uh, but do I get it trimmed? It probably is due for another trim. We've got some, maybe a few split ends going on here in April of 2023. Maybe I'll get that done, uh, soon. And, uh, as long as possible, we'll just see. I, I have noticed that probably due to my age that it has slowed down in its growth uh, maybe because I don't spend my time outside. Remember, you have to remember, sunlight causes your hair to grow faster. And being that I spend most of my time inside, I don't even have a commute to work. Mainly when I'm going outside, it's to play disc golf and I'm out in the sun, but it's only for a couple hours. And I'm a little particular about the sun because skin cancer does run in my family. So probably the, my hair growth has slowed a bit, and really, but to tell you the truth, I really don't keep track of it anyway. Uh, but I, and I know recently a woman who uh, is a very important person in my life has uh, you know given me a little criticism, and she says that I looked a lot better when my hair was short. Uh, but it's all about the fun to me when it comes to this hair. It's all about the fun. So that's my answer. This is my real hair. I will never color it. There are gray strands in it that I'm never going to get colored or anything. But doing a podcast and having the freedom that I do to do this podcast, I don't have a boss and everything, allows me uh, to do this. Maybe if 
I had another type of job with supervisors and things that look at me and say, yeah, you got to do something about that. But that is not my situation right now. Final question. Ed, I have a question for you. However, it may, may not be one that you want to answer on the 14th show. So April 14th, 2023 is what this person means, means when this episode is coming out. I'm asking out of curiosity. I consider you to be a guy with a very strong sense of right and wrong. At least that's how it appears to me. I also know that you're a big Phil Mickelson fan. Here's the question. Does it bother you at all that Phil is part of the Live Golf organization? Now, first of all, I need to explain probably to many of you why this question is. What is the context of this question? Um, Live Golf is a new uh, league that came out within the past year and a half. It is a golf league being financed by Saudi Arabia. And it came on the scene, and the person who was running it, although did not financing it, but running it kind of like the commissioner, like um, Goodell for the NFL, is Greg Norman, who is a former professional golfer. He won a couple, I think, of two British Opens. But he's more famously known for choking twice at the Masters, losing once to Larry Mize and the other time to Nick Faldo. In fact, him losing to Nick Faldo is considered to be one of the biggest choke jobs in the history of professional golf. But he is, but Greg Norman overall, I mean, was number one in the world, very distinguished career. Most golfers would have loved to have had Greg Norman's career. <clears throat> but he is the commissioner. And what Live Golf, and the reason it's called Live, capital L, capital I, capital V, Golf, is because in Roman numerals, L-I-V is 54, and the significance of that is that the, the tournaments they run are not 72 holes like what the PGA does. They're only 54 holes, so the golfers only end up playing for three days instead of four. They play Friday through Sunday instead of Thursday through Sunday, so that's where they got whether that's a good name or not, I really don't know. <clears throat> but that is what it is. It's Live Golf. It's been around. And what Live Golf has successfully done, it is has, due to a variety of issues that I'm going to get into, has drawn quite a few golfers away from the PGA and the European leagues to take part in it. Um... Of course, Phil Mickelson is one of them, and he is my favorite athlete, uh, has been for the last almost 20 years. Uh, before that, it was Andre Agassi before he retired. Um, but other well-known names, Brooks, Brooks Kepka, who is a four-time major winner. He's an American and a former number one, just even very recently number one in the world. Bubba Watson who is a two-time Masters winner. He's part of Live Golf. Uh, Sergio Garcia, he's from Spain. He won the Masters a few years ago. He also went over there. I mean, it's Kevin Na, another golfer that I really like, although he hasn't won any majors. But he's had some pretty good years recently, and he went over there. And this has caused quite a stir, quite a stir in golf. Uh, biggest... 
thing, biggest deal as far as the politics of uh, golf for many, 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 many decades. Maybe the last big thing might have been when a lot of golfers started to go professional, when it became like a professional sport. You actually could make enough money to live on. Probably was the last time that golf had something this huge happen to it. And there have been lawsuits, Live Golf claiming that the PGA is trying to put them out of the business. There's been countersuing, and it's a lot of this stuff is working its way through the courts. But the, some of the biggest issue, or the biggest issue, at least the way the media has portrayed it, is that because Live Golf is being f- financed by Saudi Arabia which we know it's human rights record. We know it's attitudes toward women. Um, Also, many of the terrorists for 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia. This has become a huge topic. And there is a term that has become popular in the last few years of countries or groups or people trying to do this. It's called whitewashing, trying to clean up their reputations by getting involved in something that is very mainstream. Another recent example of this is Qatar, another Middle Eastern country that had that hosted the World Cup. And we now know that Qatar got that by bribes and everything else, but there was the same issues that the uh, a lot of these uh, stadiums that were constructed just for the World Cup, where you were done by what you would call slavery, getting uh, people from Africa to go over there working for minimum, uh, very, very low wages, and uh, the deaths that occur because of Qatar being such a, a hot country, and you know scandals involving putting the World Cup together, which, dare I say it, is not new. But that was a version of whitewashing Qatar trying to, you know, open itself up to the world by throwing all this money at, you know, these stadiums, these hotels and this spectacle and trying to get everybody to forget its history and some of the other things that go on there. And it's now called whitewashing. And this is what people say that. Saudi Arabia is trying to do by throwing, I mean, when I say millions and millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars at this Live Golf League. And Live Golf has had its problems, uh, have troubles getting on TV, or, you know, a lot, a lot of people showing up for their tournaments, maybe because of the bad press. Uh, maybe because people just aren't sure what's going on here, you know, what's, you know, they're playing at some courses that people don't really know, whereas the PGA kind of has a monopoly, at least in the United States, on courses. And a lot of these golf courses don't want to get in league with Live Golf because that'll tick off the PGA. A lot of things have been going on. But mainly it has to do with Saudi Arabia being the country that it is and these people taking money from a country that is very – it's very easy to criticize this country. Let's just put it that way. 
So this person asked me, does it bother me that Phil Mickelson, my favorite athlete, has gone over to live golf and he's taking money from the Saudis and everything else? Um, need to break this answer down two ways. First of all, I want to bring some reality. I, I realize if you're not interested in golf, this is going to bore you to death. But I think that also by explaining my standpoint on this, that we can understand a lot of things that go on in life and what we see in all sorts of media and trying to understand all of this. Okay. And I realize that it's very easy to jump to a conclusion on this. Even if you do follow golf, even if you are, um, Whatever side of the golf spectrum you are, it's very easy to jump to conclusions. So I'm trying, going to try to be objective as I can about this, and I am going to answer this person's question. But there are really two different aspects to this. First, there's the PGA side, and then there's everybody else. First, the PGA. We have to remember something. The PGA would be going after Live Golf no matter who financed it. It could be the Japanese. It could be um, the, the little sisters of the poor. I mean, I'm joking around, but the PGA doesn't want any competition. And I'm guessing, given that Live Golf is being f- financed by the Saudis, I'm guessing behind the scenes, the PGA is thanking its lucky stars. It's going, Whew. I'm really happy that the Saudis are financing it. And not some other group or country that would be a, ha- a lot harder to criticize. Okay, but please understand this. No matter what new league would have been created that takes away some of the PGA golfers, well-known golfers, Phil Mickelson and others, the PGA would have reacted to it the same way no matter what. <laughs> okay, no matter what. They would have been very negative. They would have attacked it. They would have done everything in their power to to undermine it and demean it and everything else. It's just being that it's Saudi Arabia doing it doing it just makes the PGA's job a lot easier. Okay, please understand that. But in what the PGA doesn't understand, or it seems to understand now, even though. You can see kind of the hypocrisy in all of this is that there are reasons that these players defected from the PGA. Even though PGA, number one golf tour in the world with the most money, the nicest locations and everything else, the most TV uh, visibility, um, there are reasons just from a golf point of view that these players left. The fact is that the PGA, and I follow golf even though I don't play it because Phil Mickelson's my favorite player. I follow what goes on in the golf world even though I don't play. The fact is the PGA is not what I would call the most um, open to changes and suggestions or anything else. Certainly not. And the PGA has only itself to blame for players defecting, no matter if it was financed by Saudi Arabia, Japan, Germany, or anybody else. Some of those issues. Two uh, players playing too slow. 
golfers being required to play too many events. In fact, you even heard Jordan Spieth, who's still on the PGA Tour once again, one of the most well-known golfers in the world, has won multiple majors, seems like a good guy, an American. He even stated at the Masters that he was burned out from playing so much. But why was he doing that? Because if you're on the PGA Tour, you're required to do that. And he even admitted it might have affected how he played at the Masters this past weekend. So don't take it from me. Take it from somebody who has decided to stay on the PGA Tour. The wraparound season. The PGA has started this thing where the the new season doesn't start in January. It starts in the preceding October. That that just seems like the weirdest thing ever. Now, we have other leagues like the NFL or the NBA or the NHL that, uh, you know, go from one year to the next. The baseball is all contained within one year. But they kind of just seem to have done this kind of willy-nilly and um, the players were not a big fan of it. Uh, The diminishing of golf in the United States. Here the PGA is running all these events and supposed to be, along with the USGA specifically for the United States, um, supposed to be promoting golf and everything else. Well, ball golf has continued to be played by fewer and fewer people year after year after year. And I know this is a disc golfer. Disc golf participation is going way up. Ball golf is going down. That's why you see so many ball golf courses getting closed. So the PGA isn't even doing that right, along with the USGA. In addition, the PGA had the ability, given that they had a monopoly on golfers, to suspend them, and then the golfers were not allowed to talk to the media about why they were even suspended. There was like a, a, what is it, a gag order. Even if they talked they would then risk further penalties. In addition, as we've found out now, the PGA for years and years claimed, you know what, and golfers, of course, make good money. You can be um, do pretty well on the PGA Tour just by finishing 30th in every... You don't even have to win one tournament. You finish 30th in any PGA tournament consistently and make a lot of cuts, you're going to live a pretty decent life. You're going to be pretty good. You're going to be okay. But for years and years, PGA said, you know, we're just maxed out on our money. We can't raise these purses. And But the PGA has rights to, the, to these uh, players' images. They can use Phil Mickelson's or anybody else's picture to market anything. And the players get nothing. This is the whole thing that, like with college sports, what's going on, your name, your image – your likeness or whatever NIL stands for. This is what was going on in the PGA. They could just do anything they wanted with anybody's image and the players get nothing. And this ticked. So all of these issues made it ripe for somebody else to come in and get these people, get these players to say, hey, you might want to think about something else. Now, what's interesting about that last point regarding money is that, yes, these players make more money going to the Live Golf Tour. But guess what has happened since Live Golf has, has come out, out and has become competition? Suddenly, all of the purses in the PGA have gotten a lot more. So it seems the PGA was kind of holding back and lying. So kind of proving some of these golfers' points who'd been saying this for years but didn't have anywhere else to go. 
And keep in mind, it's just not the Phil Mickelsons of the world who have benefited from going to live golf and getting more money. Of course, Phil doesn't need it, but there are a lot of golfers who are kind of right on the fringe, maybe making the cut this week, not making it the next week. And when you don't make the cut, you don't make any money. Zero. Zero. Whereas they saw an opportunity, you know what, I think I can go to live golf, I think I can uh, you know, do well over there and I can make some money. So these people who might not have been able to make it on the live golf tour or on the PGA can make it on the live golf tour. And these are all things that the PGA ignored for many, many years, setting themselves up, as monopolies usually do, for being undermined. Just taking everything for granted and... Um, eventually somebody's going to see an opportunity, whether it's Saudi Arabia or somebody else. So the PGA, I don't want, if you think that live golf is bad, I certainly don't want you to think, to think it's bad because you like the PGA. PGA asked for this. It just happens to be that it was Saudi Arabia that started it. So that's part of it. But the other part is every, everybody else. The media, the golfers, the public, and their perception, perceptions. And to just outright, and I realize that there's a lot of things to dislike about Saudi Arabia. And even during the Masters tournament in the press coverage early on, before the tournament got started, the, the chairman of Augusta National was asked by a, a reporter about, you know, how can you, ha- how can you have, you know, how can you have these live golfers here when, you know, American vet- veterans families are protesting Saudi Arabia and uh, for being that the Saudis had people who were involved in 9-11 and, you know, and <laughs> that's tough. You know, that's why he's the chairman. He has to answer tough questions like that. And I get it. But what I also realize, and to answer this person's question, am I bothered that Phil Mickelson is taking money from the Saudis? My answer is no. No. In fact, I wish Phil would take more money from the Saudis. In fact, I wish, even though I'm not a big Brooks Kepka fan, I think he's a little smug. I wish Brooks Kepka would take more money from the Saudis and Bubba Watson and Sergio Garcia and Kevin Na and all these other golfers who have decided to go play over there and get paid by the Saudis. Now, why do I think that? Here's why. Because I think that that money being in the golfer's hands is better than being in Saudi Arabia's hands, so the, the Arabs' hands. If you really believe that Saudi Arabia is a bad country. Now, I remind you, certainly has a lot of bad things about it when it comes to human rights, other things. On the other hand, we also have to realize that Saudi Arabia, I wouldn't call them an ally like England is an ally or Canada is an ally or Australia is an ally, but you have to realize that Saudi Arabia has certainly helped out the United States a lot over the years. Militarily, specifically. We actually have bases in Saudi Arabia. Remember that. Whereas it seems, what I'm trying to figure out, and I'm not an NBA fan. I, I haven't watched an NBA fan a game for 20 years. I know who LeBron James is. 
But I wonder why there doesn't seem to be as much as a hubbub about the NBA being very, very, very closely connected to China. Now, China is surely not an ally of the United States. China, as we know, uh, except for economically getting so many things made in China, in every other way, China and the United States are opposites. We will never the, – the Chinese and the United States have not worked together on a military operation since World War II when they allowed our bombers uh, after um, the bombing of Tokyo uh, in 1942. What was that called? The, the uh, Was it called the Tippets Raid? We went and bombed Tokyo. It was just really symbolic, but it really, really ticked the Japanese off. Most of those bombers ended up landing in China. And China was our ally during World War II. That was the last time. Because by the time the North Korean War or the Korean War rolled around, uh, the communist Chinese had come into power, and they were for North Korea, and we were for South Korea. In Vietnam, they helped out North Vietnam. We, of course, were with South Vietnam. We haven't been unified militarily with the Chinese for 80 years. And we know that they rip us off technologically. We know about their expansion in, in the South China Sea, on and on and on and on and on. Even though I know we deal with them economically, we trade with them. But they are not our allies. Yet the NBA, NBA seemingly can get away with going over there and playing games over there and everything. And there's certainly not as much hubbub as there is about these golfers taking money from Saudi Arabia. Even though Saudi Arabia is certainly closer to the United States in a lot of for interests than China is. Something I don't understand. Now, you may say, well, we shouldn't be in league with all of them. If that's your standpoint, I, I can respect it. I don't know how realistic it is. But if that's your standpoint and you're consistent on that, then, then good for you. But my attitude is, if you believe that an organization or a country or a person is bad, you should do whatever to take as much money from that person as possible. Of course, without compromising your values. And I don't think any of these golfers are compromising their values. I haven't heard, you know, in fact, what's bizarre about all of this regarding Phil Mickelson in particular is because he is the highest profile golfer who went to live golf, he has gotten most of the criticism, even though he is the one who was most critical of Saudi Arabia when this got started. He was the one that brought up the Khashoggi murder in the Saudi embassy in Turkey and critical of them. And everything else. But he decided he was going to take their money anyway, probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking as I sit here talking into this microphone. If they're willing to pay me and I'm willing to take some money off these people who are no good, then I'm going to do it. It's not like these golfers are being asked to say Saudi Arabia is the greatest country in the world and they're great on human rights or anything like that. It's been very much the opposite. I think that a lot of this um, is generated by the media. Um, you have to remember something. All of the golf media is in league with the PGA. So they will say anything to make live golf look bad. 
Certainly the Saudi Arabia has a lot of criticisms of it, and it deserves it. But my standpoint is still, if they're willing to give up $600 million and give it to a bunch of golfers and a bunch of Americans and a bunch of golfers who do believe in human rights and everything else, then we should let them do that. In fact, we should get them to give more. If it's not $600 million, how about $2 billion? How about $5 billion? How about everything that they're worth? Would that not make us all feel good? <laughs> if Saudi Arabia just said, you know what? We're just going to give our entire net worth to these golfers. Would that not make all of you who think Saudi Arabia is a bad country, would that not make you all feel better? It would. So what's the problem with the golfers taking $600 million? So that's my attitude toward it. Um, I think that the, the coverage of this has been certainly biased. The, the reporters, the, it's not the golf channel anymore. It's the PGA Tour channel. Having watched all of the Masters and everything, these people know, these reporters and everything, know which side of the bread they're, what, how they put it, which side of the bread they get buttered on. Is that how they put it, that saying? Um, and they know if they were to really, really be objective about this and realize that the PGA has made a lot of mistakes and these, these players had a, good re- had a lot of good reasons when they had a choice to go somewhere else, they wouldn't be acting like they do. But they know if they are critical of the PGA and just ob- really objective as reporters are supposed to be, then they'll be on the outs. You won't see them on the Golf Channel anymore. They won't be asked to announce the Masters or any other tournaments anymore. That'll be that. So I just wonder what everybody would really think if anybody who follows golf, if they were, everybody were getting a fair representation of everything that has gone on. In addition to just kind of maybe thinking this through... And thinking, you know, I really hate Saudi Arabia and I wish they weren't rich and everything. Well, one good way to get a hold on their money is to have them pay a bunch of Americans to golf. And we have to remember something. Some people said it's blood money. Well, and I I support these people who have done this, but there have been a lot of military veterans' families who have gone to court to sue the terrorists, Saudi Arabia, in federal court here in the United States for what? For terrorist attacks and 9-11 and everything else. And I want you to know I support that 100%. But you also have to realize that money that they would be getting would be no different than the golfers getting paid by Saudi Arabia. It's still coming from the same place. And it's still, you could say, dirty money because it's been earned the way it's been earned. But my, my standpoint always is always if some horrible person wants to just throw in money out and everything else, you take it. You take it. Now, if it gets to be a point where there are expectations of um, saying something is good that it's not and these golfers have to compromise their values of purse as people as to what they think about the ways of the world – That's something else. But that's not happening, even though the media may tell you otherwise. So what I think is right is, if you believe that Saudi Arabia is a bad country 
and it doesn't deserve to have any money, then this is one way of maybe many, 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 many ways that could be created to take money from them. You have to start somewhere. So that is my answer to the question. I I think Phil should get as much money as he can. And then what is he going to do as Phil Mickelson does? He finances, you know, with all the money that he's made, he's financed education programs and in scholarships and everything else. And this is just going to allow him to do more of that. He's taking bad money, if you consider Saudi Arabia to be good, and giving it to good causes. Children's causes, science causes, scholarships, schools, you know, all these things that he is able to do in the position that he is in. And all the other golfers are doing the same thing, I'm sure. Or they could just not take any of that money, and then all of those things wouldn't happen. Just have to pick which makes more sense to me. To you. To me, if you can take money and then turn it into something good, you do it. That's my answer. And that's the program. Right now, while you are in your podcast platform, Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, wherever, give Unfound a five-star review, a thumbs up, whatever that platform allows. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've just finished this episode of Unfound.